Good morning, Trinity. I always love hearing you guys sing. I get the privilege of standing backstage and singing with you, and gosh, what a privilege, isn't it, to be together and just be able to worship the Lord. I hope you came this morning feeling a need and not self-sufficient. I hope you came this morning looking for God to speak to you and to encourage you and that this body would encourage you because I truly believe that's what church is. It's not a building, right? It's a group of people who have been called out to worship the Lord. Hey, today we get the privilege of starting a new sermon series. We are in the book of 1 John, so I'm going to be asking you to turn there in just a minute. But before we do, I wanted to share with you some important news. I think many of you know that we are an elder-led congregational church, and our annual year ends June, July. And so we're coming up into the start of a new year as as far as a church. And that also means that we get to be electing some new elders. So at our last congregational meeting, the elder board asked for nominations, and they received uh, over 20 names, which is really healthy. And it's so exciting. Not everybody's available. Not everybody is willing at that moment. But it's really great that we have uh, so many men who are being nominated for these roles of leadership. Um, the elders have spent time over the, that period of time since the uh, nominations to look at all of these names and begin calling and saying, hey, are you uh, interested? Are you willing? Are you available? Um, do you feel that you're biblically capable? And I just want to update you today on where we're at. I think it's uh, great that we have uh, a good group of elders right now. Two of them are coming off the board. So uh, Dan Fleming, our board chairman, uh, is actually moving into, into a new area of medicine, and so he is going to be relocating toward the coast to engage in that new area of medicine. So he's rotating off the board. He and Janine are going to be moving uh, sometime in the future, and uh, they wanted to let you know that. And then secondly, Doug Dupree is completing his term as an elder, and he's going to be taking a break, which uh, every three years, as they complete a term, we encourage them. Take a break. It's a lot of work, right? And so he's going to be doing that. Uh, We have two elder nominees who are willing and available at this time, and so we wanted to let you know who they are and ask you to begin to pray for them and uh, also to give us some feedback on them. They are Scott Strum and uh, Eldon Reinders. Now, Eldon, yeah, isn't that exciting? That is good news. Eldon is currently on the board, and his term is coming up, but he said, hey, I've got the spirit. I want to go for another term. So God bless him. You know, he's, he's going to take it on. Um, knowing that uh, this puts us at a constitutional minimum of five elders, I've encouraged the elders to uh, have a, a period of time where these guys can accommodate to the board before our other two elders move off the board. I think it's always helpful to engage in an environment where they can learn the ethos and they can acclimate. So I've encouraged them to um, see if we could uh, elect them a little bit earlier than June. That gives them a couple of months to just be together, pray together, learn from each other. And so uh, I'm, uh, the board has agreed. And uh, so we want to present to you uh, these two gentlemen who were up on the board just a minute ago as elder nominees, and if approved, um, at April 30th, which is when we would like to, excuse me, we'd like to have a congregational meeting, then they would be able to start in May and uh, in June and work together. So this morning, we're presenting them to you. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, please be praying for them. If you know of any reason they shouldn't be serving on the board, uh, we would love to hear from you. We need it in writing and have you sign it and give it to us this week so that we can take a look at that. 
But if you feel like these guys are fully qualified, then we'd love to have you come on April 30th and approve them and get them onto the board and let them begin to uh, work together uh, before we have these transitions. And we appreciate very much all the feedback you give us. So that's the announcement. Let me take a minute and pray for us as we get into 1 John. Heavenly Father, I know that every Sunday morning I stand up here and I say to you before I get up here, Lord, I need you. Uh, I need you to speak your word clearly. I need you to uh, let the love that you've given me for these people flow and the love that I have for you to be evident. Uh, Father, I pray that each of us here today would be able to honestly say, Lord, I do need you every hour. Uh, you're my defense. You're my righteousness. Oh, Lord, how I need you. So, Father, as we begin this study in 1 John, as we listen to your best friend describe uh, who you are and who we are in relationship to each other and in relationship to the world that we live in, Father, open our hearts to fully understand what you want us to know and, and how you want us to live. And Father, we pray that this time in 1 John would not be simply an academic exercise of learning uh, new ideas and um, seeking to embed them, but Father, that they would be life transformative. We admit we live in a world today that is very different from what you have uh, called us to be. And so we want to be different and not just think differently. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, uh, Jurassic Park has been a favorite sci-fi for many folks for many years. At our last church, my associate pastor, who is now the lead pastor down there, he and I were talking one day, and he said, hey, my wife and I are going to be doing a uh, Jurassic Park, you know, a movie-thon. Um, would you like to come and watch with us? And I said, I've never seen them. Anyway... You, you've never seen one of them? I said, I don't like the idea of dinosaurs eating people. It just kind of gets under my skin a little bit. And he goes, no, 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 no. Before we're done here, you have got to see one of them. So I went back to the very beginning one, right? I thought that's got to be the least scary, horrific, whatever. Uh, it's interesting. Dinosaurs continue to be a part of our uh, children's fascination and T-shirts, right? See those all the time. But when I watched the first movie, um, it, it was actually very good. So those of you who like Jurassic Park, I probably won't see the rest of them, but, but the, it was good. And what I liked about one scene was how uh, these two world-class paleontologists, so you've got Ellen Grant and Ellie uh, Sattler, they've devoted their lives to the study of dinosaurs, and one day they suddenly come face-to-face -face with a real, live Brachiosaurus. And, and it changes everything, right? So let's take a brief look at that scene and then we'll move on from there into 1 John. Alan, this species of Veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is about this thing.
it's it's a dinosaur. Uh-huh. It is terrible. The rule book on it. Cold-bloodedness, it doesn't apply. It totally wrong. It's a warm-bodied creature. <laughs> this thing doesn't live in a swamp. This thing's got, what, a 25, 27-foot neck? A brachiosaur, 30. just vibrated that was pretty cool <laughs> now those of you who like these movies are gonna go home going hey we ought to watch that one we just got a taste this morning but you know they were they were dumbstruck and of course the reason is obvious you know it's one thing to piece together uh, an informed yet incomplete view of dinosaurs by picking through collections of old fossils and bone fragments it's something altogether different to encounter an actual living dinosaur in real life, in real time. It has no comparison. The same is true today when we talk about the absolute reality of God. For many, the reality of God amounts to uh, picking through artifacts of long ago and far away faith. Uh, They recognize that, you know, in true, in a bygone era, um, people were said to have seen God, right? To have, to have heard his voice, to have experienced his awesome and at times terrifying power. But they think that was then and this is now. And uh, do those kinds of gripping encounters with God, a God who isn't a, a dry piece of historical data, a God who is really real and vibrant and powerful, do those things really happen today, right? Is that true? Is it right? The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John tells us this morning, yes, he absolutely is real. We've all probably heard someone say from time to time, well, don't worry, there's no strings attached, right? Or uh, this is right on the money, or uh, that's as sure as it can be, or there's no ifs, ands, or, uh, or buts. I mean, think timeshare presentations, right? We've all heard those things, and it, we kind of sit back and wonder, well, I don't know, is that, is that really real? Is it true all the time, or is it being deceptive? Well, that, tr- that is not true of God. When you come into the Word of God, in the book of, New, uh, book of 1 John in the New Testament, we find in just these five chapters, 39 different times, 39, that John uses the word to know or to have knowledge. And that's why this series is entitled, Absolutely, because John wants to share with us that, yes, we live in an age of non-absolutes. Would you agree with that? Our culture today does not believe in absolutes. Um, They don't consider anything absolutely, absolutely true. And by that, what we mean is it's true for all people, in all times, in all places. That's an absolute truth. Something that's true for all people at all times, in all places. And so they say there are no absolutes, but we should quickly notice that merely making that statement, protesting against absolutes, is an absolute statement. Right? They're saying there are no absolutes for all people in all places, at all times, which is a little awkward because they've just made an absolute statement. But in our world today, there are so many absolutes that we can point our finger at and say that is absolutely true for all people in all places at all times. It is an absolute truth that people thrive when they are loved. 
Think about that. That's an absolute truth. For all people, in all places, at all times, people thrive when they are loved. Another absolute truth is that every human being on earth is produced by a male-female union. There are no exceptions. The male sperm, the female egg, are absolutely essential to all human life for all people at all times, in all places, even in vitro. Those are required. That's an absolute truth. Think about this. It's an absolute truth for all people in all times at all places that gravity rules. How many of you have ever gone parachuting? My hand is up there. I have. <laughs> My brother was turning 40, and he said, Doug, I want to go parachuting, but I don't want to go alone. So if you go with me, I'll pay for you. I talked to Lisa. She said, are you out of your mind? You're jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. I said, yes, but it's with a parachute. So I did some research on parachuting, right? Does gravity take effect in parachuting? Oh, absolutely. You step out of that plane, guess what? You fall. I got to the airfield over here in, uh, get that pencil off the ground, in Temecula. And uh, there was my brother sitting in his car behind the steering wheel, and he's riding something. I came over to him, and I said, hey, Terry, you all ready for this? I, I've done some research. It's absolutely safe. He said, yeah, I'm just writing a note to my wife in case something happens. <laughs> what? I went back to my car, got out a piece of paper, and I started writing something to Lisa. <laughs> she said to me, I don't want to go. I don't want to see it happen. Jump out of the plane at 15,000 feet, free fall. And you don't even see the ground coming up to you until about 5,000 feet. And then it's like, whoom, gravity, right? Is that an absolute truth? Is that an absolute truth? Yes, it is. How about this one? It is an absolute truth that the natural course of life always ends in death. Absolutely. I was at a memorial service yesterday for a favorite aunt of mine. And this was my mom's cousin. And uh, talking to the family, ministering to them through the word, one of the things that you notice at a memorial service for a Christian is they grieve, but not without hope. And so they had a great Mexican buffet afterwards, and people are chatting, and there are smiles, and they're telling stories, because death has been conquered by Jesus Christ. And if you were here last week for Easter, you heard that. But it's an absolute truth. Everybody dies except for the rapture. Let me give you one more. It's an absolute truth that air is a necessity for all mammals to live. Try breathing underwater for three minutes instead of holding your breath. That's an absolute truth. And so we live in a world that has absolutes, but we have a difficult time as a culture applying those to morality, to things that are theological, to God himself. And I love what God questions has to say. Let me... Uh, put it up on the screen for you, they kind of weigh in on these, uh, this idea of absolutes. Some folks say there are no absolutes that define reality. This leads to situational ethics, which is the belief that what is right or wrong is relative to the situation. In this view, there is no right or wrong. Therefore, whatever feels or seems right at the time and in that situation is right. Of course, situational ethics leads to a subjective whatever-feels-right mentality and lifestyle, which has a devastating effect on society and individuals. What if it is right for me to ignore traffic lights, even when they are red? Or I might think it is right to steal from you, and you might think it is not right. Clearly, our standards of right and wrong are in conflict. 
if there is no absolute truth, there's no standard of right and wrong that we are all accountable to, then we can never be sure of anything. People would be free to do whatever they want. Murder, rape, steal, lie, cheat. And no one could say these things would be wrong. When taken to its logical conclusion, there could be no government, no laws, no justice. Because one could not even say that the majority of people have the right to make and enforce standards upon the minority. A world without absolutes would be the most horrible world imaginable. And they conclude with this. Others hold the view that there are indeed absolute realities and standards that define what is true and what is not. Therefore, actions can be determined to be either right or wrong by how they measure up to those absolute standards. If there are no absolutes, no reality, then chaos ensues. What if two plus two did not always equal four? The effects on civilization would be disastrous. Laws of science and physics would be irrelevant and commerce would be impossible. What a mess that would be. Thankfully, two plus two does equal four. My grandsons will tell you that. There is absolute truth and it can be found and understood. So, folks, it is from this perspective that John is writing to us, this perspective of absolutes. And if you have your sermon notes in front of you, or if you have them online, we'll also show them on the screen. This is how it plays out in 1 John. So we're going to just kind of walk through the five chapters in summary form and capsulize the absolutes that John nails for us. Number, number one, in chapter one, he says, we can absolutely have a real relationship with God. No questions asked. And we can absolutely be cleansed of sin. What a wonderful thought. First John 2, he says, we can absolutely live like Jesus lived. In fact, we are commanded, if this is real for us, we are commanded to live the way Jesus lived. And he says, it's absolutely possible. We can absolutely thrive and grow in our faith. That is possible. We don't have to be stagnant. We don't have to be simply plodding along. We can grow and thrive. And thirdly, he says in chapter 2, we can absolutely know truth. I love that part of 1 John. We can know that. We can know what is right and wrong. 1 John 3, we can absolutely be confident about the future. We can absolutely love each other well. 1 John 4, we are absolutely indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Such an important reality for us as Christians today. We are absolutely adored by God. Not just loved, but adored by God. Let that one sink in, right? 1 John 5, we are absolutely born to overcome, not to succumb. We are absolutely born to that. God's testimony about Jesus and life are absolutely true. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. And lastly, God absolutely hears and protects us from death the evil one, and the world. That is an amen statement. Amen. So John takes all of these things and he lays them out against a canvas composed of some pretty stark contrasts. Uh, and he wants to show us how they work out in life. He wants us to understand that these are truths that are actually relevant and practical and real. And so he says, here's this canvas of living in the light versus living in the darkness, these contrasts. And he plays it out in 1 John. He says... Here's the contrast of engaging in sin and engaging in righteousness or living for the world versus living for the will of God. 
He talks about the power of the Antichrists, plural, and the power of the living Christ. And he talks about having doubt versus having confidence. And in the middle of these stark contrasts, he says, look, absolute truth absolutely works. Now, he admits that there are competitors in our world today for the idea of truth. He's, he's very upfront about that. He's very real about it. But he asserts time and time again that living by the absolutes that God gives us is by far a much better way to live. If you're going to live any way at all, live by the absolutes of God. So here's why, where I want to take you in the passage this morning. 1 John 5. So if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them to 1 John 5? And I want to show you some of his no statements. Now, interestingly, this is just nine verses. Look at how often he says you can know. And again, we'll project this up on the screen for us. We're going to start in verse 13 through 21. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. That's why I'm writing this book. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Again, this very affirmative statement. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we again know that we have the requests we have asked of him. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray about that. Verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Do you want to stop sinning? Less and less sin in your life, more and more righteousness. He says, we can, we can know that if you've been born of God, you don't keep on sinning. The word there is practicing, ongoing sin. We can put a stop to that. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It, that is so evident today. The whole world lies within the grip of Satan today. But he says, we know we are from God. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we again may know him who is true. And we're in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't take paths that depart from Jesus. John says some very specific things here that we can absolutely know. Let me give you the five things that come out of this passage. Number one, we can know that we have eternal life. How often I talk to people and they say, I hope, I think, I would love to know that I'm going to heaven. Our culture today believes that all dogs go to heaven. It also believes that all people go to heaven. But the word of God is very clear. It says, no, that isn't true. It's only those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ who have confessed their sins, who have placed their trust in him, who have embraced the kingdom of God, there is a place in heaven for them. But he says, we can know that we have eternal life. You don't have to have a doubt that you're going there because the word of God tells us it's a done deal. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about it if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What a fantastic truth. 
especially when we realize that death is one of those absolutes. Secondly, verse 14. Folks, we can know that God hears us and he responds to whatever we ask when we ask according to his will. There are parts to this. First of all, God hears us and responds to us, but we have to ask, and we have to ask according to his will. And so we might say to ourselves, wow, that is truly a game changer. When we know God's will, we can ask for it and receive it. So what is the will of God? Well, the word of God doesn't hide the answer to that. Let me give you three passages, and this is just three of them. Two are in 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 4.3, you might write this down. I'll just read it for you. It's simple. For this is the will of God. Now, let's pause there for a second. What is the will of God? Well, we're about to hear what the will of God is. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. God wants that in our lives. So, folks, if we want to be morally pure, if we want to break the chains of porn, if we want to be a person who knows that hooking up is, is not the way to go, God says you can have a life of moral purity. But you have to ask for it because it's the will of God for you. And John says you will receive that. One chapter later, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So think about your circumstances right now. Are any of those circumstances things that you would not normally be happy about? I've had some. In fact, I have some right now in terms of extended family. I would love to see those things changed. But God says, well, Doug, start in this. Give thanks in all things. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And if I ask God, help me be grateful. Help me be thankful in the midst of these circumstances. He says, that's great. That's my will for you. It's done. I will change your heart. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So that when people are critical of you, derogatory, they are spiteful toward you, God says you can do the will of God in doing good toward them. I will help you with that. Aren't those wonderful statements? This is the will of God. John says, look, if you ask for it, you will receive it when you ask according to the will of God. And there's so many other things in Scripture that he invites us to ask for. Number three is in verse 18. We can know that everyone born of God does not continually sin. In other words, we can become less and less open to temptation, more and more resilient against sin because Jesus protects us and Satan cannot touch us. Look at verse 18 again. We know, he says, that everyone who has been born of God, it's an interesting phrase there, born is the word sperma, everyone who has God's DNA in them in the presence of the Holy Spirit doesn't have to keep on sinning. But he who was born of God, Christ, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Do you want to be done with your sins, the ones that maybe have just lagged along for years? You've struggled with them for years. It's tough to get rid of them. God says, look, it is possible to stop sinning in those ways. Jesus Christ protects you. Satan cannot touch you. You need this relationship with God 
that enables you to walk in purity. And, and John is going to talk to us more about that as we get into this book of how do we do that? So if we're tired of the rinse and repeat nature of sin, right? If we're tired of that, we can gain a, grating, a greater confidence as we move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me give you just the last two. And then I've got uh, a quote for you and a, a story out of John's life I want you to hear. Number four, we know that we're from God while living in a word, world lying in the power of the evil one. Verse 19, we know that we're from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if we're ready for a change of, um, of allegiances, if serving God seems better than remaining in Satan's grasp, we can change sides. And those of you who know Jesus Christ have done that. And that's the invitation to our world, to your friends, to the people who live around us. Look, you don't have to stay within the culture that we are embedded. There is an alternative to that. And number five, he says, we know that Jesus came and gives us a new perspective to know the eternal, true God. Look at verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So if we need to see life differently, if our way of seeing the world seems jaded, if it's lacking, lacking substance, we can experience change by this absolute truth that Jesus gives us a new perspective. He changes the way we look at things. Folks, this is just nine verses out of all of 1 John. And he hammers home again and again this idea that we can know things absolutely. We can whet our appetite. We can get the juices flowing to live in a new and, and different way in this topsy-turvy world. So this is our introduction to 1 John. We just dipped in a little bit. And I want to wrap up this morning with two last things. One is a quote, and it's an extended quote. Uh, it's actually nine pages single-spaced quote. Now, I, I took snippets out of there. You're going to be glad for that, right? But I want you to buckle up your seatbelts because you're going to see quite a few slides. But I, I want you to hear from uh, this author, Lindy. Um, where is her last name? I didn't put it in there. From Lindy. <laughs> she wrote for Focus on the Family. Um, they took this article she printed, and they said, this is a fantastic representation of where the world is today on truth on absolute truth. So there's going to be a, a number of slides, but I think you're going to enjoy it. She's a great writer, and she talks about this in a very practical term. So she starts off and she says, whatever happened to truth? In our world, the idea of ultimate truth, absolute truth, something that is true for all times and all places and has relevance for our lives, is about as extinct as the dinosaur. And I thought, I like that. I mean, there we are dipping back into the first part of the message, but... It's about as extinct as the dinosaur, this idea of absolute truth. She says, in fact, nearly three out of four Americans say there is no such thing as ultimate or absolute truth. And the numbers, she writes, don't look much better among those who claim to follow Jesus. There's an impact on the church, on the lives of Christians today when we think about this stuff. She says, in a society where ultimate truth is treated like a fairy tale, like an outdated idea, or even an insult to human intelligence, 
the motto of the day becomes whatever. You ever heard that in a conversation? No, whatever. Believe whatever you want. Do whatever seems best to you. Live for whatever brings you pleasure as long as it doesn't hurt someone. And of course, be tolerant. Don't try to tell anyone that, they're, uh, that what their whatever is wrong. But where does that leave us? And, and notice this statement of hers. She says, if there's no true story, what many people call a meta-narrative, this overarching idea of truth, if there's no true story of where we came from and why we're here, then there's nothing that really gives our lives meaning. And I think she's got a good point there. However, she says, in the scope of history, whatever is a pretty new way of viewing the world. From before Jesus' time, when he was born until the late 1700s, people believed in a spiritual or supernatural world that coexisted with the physical world and affecting all aspects of it. There was this um, co-joining of these two aspects of life, the supernatural and the natural. People who lived during that time also generally believed that the natural world was orderly. It could be studied, that truth was touchable based on the supernatural rather than natural realities. And by the way, you'll see uh, scattered through here some of the references that she's referring back to in her article. But around the mid-1700s, common ideas about truth and the supernatural changed. People started focusing on the uniqueness of humans and the human mind, and they were right... We are unique, God has made us special, but unfortunately, the good idea took a wrong turn. And instead of praising God for creating our minds, people started treating the human mind as if it were a God. Scientists made astounding discoveries, and the scope of knowledge seemed limitless. Everything worked fine until we started coming up with questions and problems that science couldn't answer. And it took nearly 200 years, but eventually people started to realize that science and reason hadn't eliminated the problems of poverty, crime, and hunger. Just consider how true that is here in California with homelessness. Can science answer that question? Well, we're really struggling to figure that out because it's so much more than just a scientific perspective. She says, after a while, we became discouraged with trying to find a better solution and decided there just isn't a solution. Science isn't the answer. It isn't the source of truth. And of course, God had been excluded from the picture long ago, so what did that leave us? Nothing. And of course, there are true statements that can be made about what we see around us. I have three apples. The law of gravity applies. But once we've excluded both God and reason, there's nothing left to provide ultimate truth. Think about that. Once you get rid of God as the source of all things and the ultimate statement about all things, and once you take science and man's ability to reason and think about all things and you say, neither one is working for us, what are you left with? The kind of truth that is true always and everywhere, the kind of truth on which to base our moral decisions, that leads us to whatever. She begins to wrap it up here and she says, two of the most significant whatevers today, and, and I think these are really important for us to think about because they are true. We hear them in our culture all the time. These drums are being beaten. Two of the most significant whatevers today are, number one, popular opinion. See if you think this is true. She says, you only have to look as far as your TV to know that society thinks popular opinion is a good basis for making decisions. Otherwise, why would our advertisements tell us to catch the wave or make the choice of a new generation. 
All of these ads appeal to the idea that everyone is doing it, and so should you. And number two, and I think this is the dominant of the two, is feelings. Emotions are perhaps the most popular basis, she writes, for making choices today. After all, how can anyone argue with how you feel? If feelings are a good standard for decision-making, then you'll never have to come up with a better defense than, I did it because I felt like it. I was at a stop sign over off of Wildwood Canyon this last week. Came to the stop sign, there's a right-hand turn there, you know, heading back toward Yucaipa Boulevard. Truck pulls up next to me, doesn't even stop, right in front of me. And I'm thinking, what are you doing, you know? I stopped, why don't you stop? And that's a right turn lane. He goes down around the corner, and I was fuming a little bit. I shouldn't have been, but I was thinking, why don't people obey the law? I come around the corner, and what happens? Someone just, a slow car pulls right in front of me. And I said, serves your right, buddy. <laughs> Why did I say that? Why did he do what he did? He obviously believed it didn't apply to him, or he's in a hurry, or whatever. And I'm thinking, but it's the law, right? He felt like it. It was what he felt was the right thing in that moment to do for him. And it just aggravated me a bit. She writes, it doesn't take a lot of what-if scenarios to realize there are major problems with all these approaches to decision-making. What if a group changes its opinion? How do you know which one was right? And what if we're following our feelings and they lead us to an action with consequences you can't handle? We've gotten ourselves into this whatever mess, but it's getting harder and harder to live there, so how do we get out? Here is her solution. A couple of slides left. First we realize that it's reasonable to desire truth. That's a reasonable desire, to want truth. How many of us desire truth? We want to know what's the right thing to do. I want it to work for me. I want it to be successful. And secondly, she says, it's reasonable to search for ultimate truth in God. That's a reasonable thing to do. She says, if you get lost hiking in the woods, what would you do to find your way? If you knew anything about outdoor survival, you wouldn't keep wandering around, trying new paths, hoping you'd eventually stumble upon the right one. No, what you would do instead, she says, is you would turn around, retrace your steps until you found where you went wrong, where you went off the path, and then you'd make a better choice and go on from there. It's true. In our search for truth, she says, we are obviously lost. In fact, many of us have given up hope of ever reaching our destination. Those still looking for truth have chosen to keep wandering rather than turn around and fix their past mistakes. But making that 180-degree turn and taking a hard look at where we've gone wrong in the past is exactly what we need to do as a culture. Here's her last comment. I told you to buckle your seatbelts, right? This is extensive, but it's good. And then I want to look at John. We've already discussed the fact that through most of history, people believed in objective truth and the supernatural. And they believed that the two were closely related. And when these ideas got lost, it was because society made two distinctly wrong turns. First, people abused human reason and intellect. And second, they threw God out the window if we are to get back on the right track, we've got to go back and fix these mistakes. I was watching a video this week with Pastor Francis Chan. I think many of you know him. 
wonderful teacher of the word. He was being interviewed on live, interviewed on live action, and about a 60-minute interview, but at one point, he stopped, and he took his Bible, and he began to talk about absolute truth, and what he wants to pass on to his kids, and why that's so important. And so I'd like to have you listen into a very short clip of him talking about the importance of absolute truth. have to attach ourselves to these ancient truths. And we have to question, question like, wait, so civilization, human, they believed all these things for 6,000 years, and now we in this generation are gonna change all of the rules? And that makes sense to us? Like, we're just challenging my kids to think that through and go, look, mom and dad, I was handed this 40 years ago, and I've studied it every day, mm. loved it. I've been in communion with this God for 40 years, and I'm now passing this off mm. to you. It's like a baton. It's like this has been passed down for 6,000 years, came to me. I've held it for mm. 40 years, and I'm going to hold it till I die. You know, but it's it's your turn, mm. and you've got to decide, are you going to continue in this tradition, mm. or are you going to believe your friend, mm. or that this generation is the one that finally figured out that everyone was wrong for all of human history? Powerful. One of the very first pictures I have as a child that my mom passed off to me is, is I've got, I'm standing in the front yard, and I've got my dad's Bible, which was actually the table Bible, right? And I'm just standing there as this little six-year-old kid holding on to the Bible. And as I look back at that picture, I think, I'm so glad they took that because they did a good job of handing it off to me, and I have sought to hand it off to my family, and the reason we do this is because it changes our lives. It's absolutely true that it changes things. The Apostle John, best friend of Jesus, so I love the fact that we're kind of looking at him from a relational point of view, had a title uh, throughout church history. He was called John the Beloved, John the Well-Loved, John the Kind Guy, John the Caring Guy, John the Compassionate Guy. But that's not how Jesus saw him. You know what nickname Jesus gave him? Thunderous man. The sons of thunder, James and John. And he started out his relationship with Jesus Christ being self-serving and, and jealous and uh, revengeful and overzealous and intolerant of other people. That was the John of the Bible. And it was only through experiencing Jesus Christ and the absolutes that he taught and bringing them into the sphere of his thinking and his experience, that John began to change. The Word of God tells us that he came from a family who had servants. So when, when, uh, in Matthew 1, 19, Jesus calls James and John, the sons of thunder, from their fishing um, business with their dad. It says they left, and they left Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. So his family was wealthy enough as a middle-class family to have their own servants who were working with them. He also had personal friends in places of power. When Jesus was arrested and Peter and John are following the crowd over to uh, the high priest's home, 
John 18 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, John. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered into the courtyard. Peter stood outside the door, and John, the other disciple who was known to the high priest, came and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch and brought Peter in. So he's a guy who is used to the wealthy lifestyle, the powerful lifestyle. And some of the personality traits of that culture, of that status, crept into his life. Listen to some of the things. Mark 9, 38. John is intolerant of other believers. Jesus uh, uh, is teaching, and, and John comes to him and says, Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him, Stop it! Because he wasn't one of us. Intolerance. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Hey, whoever's not against us is for us, right? Luke 9, 52 reveals how he other, often, believed, uh, often viewed other believers harshly. Some Samaritans didn't welcome Jesus. And John asked Jesus, Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call for down fire from heaven to destroy them? I'm amazed he even thought he could do that. But he's thinking, Yeah, let's just burn them to a crisp, God. Does that sound like John the Beloved? No. Mark 10, 35, shows us the power-hungry side of John. James and John and their mom come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, do for us whatever we ask, which is a little bit arrogant in itself. We want to sit at your right and left hands when you rule in glory. Out of all of the twelve, make us the two special ones. And yet as John spent time with Jesus, and he heard these absolute truths and he acts on them, he becomes known as John the Beloved who writes to us the Gospel of John, who writes to us 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he writes to us the book of Revelation. And folks, it is out of this personal transformation and conviction about God that John speaks to us in 1st John. I think you're going to absolutely love it. And on that, I'd like to ask you to pray with me. Father, we readily confess that we live in a world today that has rejected you for the most part. We have marginalized you. We have sidelined you. And in many cases, in the minds of people, they have eradicated you. And our world looks at things from a natural perspective, a scientific, actually a postmodern kind of perspective today where science doesn't give us all the answers, but personal feelings and public opinion and uh, the presence of power get to tell us who makes right and wrong. And Father, confessing that, we recognize we live in a world that is controlled by the evil one. And Father, we have good people in our world today who are so confused, who are wanting to know, how do I live well? How do I live by what is right rather than what is wrong? Our conscience still tells us there is right and wrong, but, Father, our world denies it unless it is mandated by the group. And we kind of do have this group thing today, or mandated by the feelings a person has, and don't tell me I'm wrong. God, we need this book. We need the truths that it gives us as Christians so that we can follow in the footsteps of Jesus. We can love people well. We can speak honestly and convincingly about the realities of life. And, Father, in doing so, we pray that our hearts would be confirmed and that those who would listen to us as we share these truths would be encouraged to follow after you. 
Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.